0: This is Our American Stories, and it's time for one of our favorite segments. We love music here on the show, and it's the story of a song, and we've done a bunch of great ones. Jesus Takes the Wheel, There Goes My Life, Another Brick in the Wall, Gimme Shelter, on and on. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to all of them when you're taking a long ride. You'll love it. A lot of it from the songwriters themselves. Light My Fire, The Exegesis by Ray Manzarek, the keyboard player. It's just amazing. There are songs that sound like they've been around forever. Songs that were not written as much as transcribed. Transcribed for the ages. The song we're about to talk about, well, it's one of those songs. It's by country legend Vince Gill. And it's Go Rest High on That Mountain. For the longest time, I just thought it was part of the American songbook. One of those songs that was always just there, like House of the Rising Sun. One of the songs that when you go to find who wrote it, well, it had no author. I want to play a clip because when we're telling the story of the song, we like to hear from the writer himself and the source of the inspiration of this song that felt like it's been around forever. Here's Vince Gill talking about it.
1: I've had bigger hits and songs that have sold more and, and all of those uh, all those things, but that will be the one song hands down that, that will that will identify me and I couldn't be prouder. You know, if that were to wind up in a hymnal someday, it would yeah. just be the sweetest thing in the world, you know, that something I did later in life was would correlate with the very first thing that I ever heard was something out of a hymnal. And I, I know that song is, is powerful. Um, I, I did it, it had no intention of being any of that. You know, all it was intended for was for me to grieve my brother's death and honor him and, and and celebrate what I thought was in store for him and and what really didn't even plan to record it. And Tony Brown said, you have to record this song. I said, well, okay, if you want to. And and, and then they told me they were going to put it as a single. And I said, well, you guys have lost your minds. <laughs> I couldn't have been more wrong, but um, I, I, I really could not be prouder that, that I was lucky enough to, to to strike a chord with people that that they want to go to that song um, in their gravest times and in their most painful and hurtful and, and sad times, that they go to that song to find comfort. Maya Angelou um, got in touch with me and told me that that song um, was an amazing song. Uh, healing process for her when she lost her brother i feel pretty blessed and lucky and all those things to have gotten to write that one
0: and we're all blessed and lucky he did and you know it was interesting as we were listening to that clip greg Hengler pointed out to us that he doesn't just wait for folks to die to celebrate this song and to listen to the song in fact he listens to it every week he told us and then in the end it inspires him as it relates to how to live There was one particular lyric I'm going to quote to you, and then we're going to play the song in its entirety, as we always do with the story of the song. And it's the chorus. Go rest high on that mountain, son, when your work on earth is done. Go to heaven a-shoutin'. Love for the Father and the Son. And with that, for both folks who listen to it uh, when people have died, and for folks like Greg who listen to it to inspire them, Let's take a listen to Vince Gill's song. I know
1: your i
0: And you're listening by the way to Ricky Skaggs and Patty Loveless. Gill's older brother Bob died of a heart attack in 1993. This song won Vince Gill CMA Song of the Year Award in 1996 and two Grammys. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song. We continue here on our American stories, and our next story is about an American legend named Richard King. King's legacy can be seen on every tailgate and door of Ford's upscale F Series trucks and their Expedition model, too. The logo reads King Ranch. The partnership makes sense because both the Ford Motor Company and the King Ranch in Texas are built on the same heritage, ruggedness, and authenticity. Here to tell the story of Richard King is Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. A former U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA, Dr. McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries and is a regular contributor to Our American Stories.
2: Here's Roger McGrath. The cattle kings of the Old West carved empires out of the wilderness. They were larger-than-life characters. Bold, daring, intelligent, courageous, tough. They had great strength of character and iron wills. No cattle king exhibited these characteristics more than Richard King. Born in New York City to Irish immigrant parents in 1824, Richard King is only three years old when his parents die and he is left in the care of an aunt. At nine years old, he is apprenticed to a jeweler. The jeweler works him hard six days a week. On his day off, the young boy walks down to the docks of Manhattan and watches the ships come and go. He dreams of climbing aboard a ship and sailing off. At 12 years old, he does just that. Here's William Yancey, historian at Texas A&M University,
3: Kingsville. He ran away to the docks in New York City, and he snuck on board an ocean-going ship called the Desdemona and he hid out in the hold of that ship for about two weeks, just scrounging whatever food he could get his hands on. Now, after two weeks, some sailors found him in the hold of that ship, and at this point, the ship was already well out to sea. So they grabbed him, brought him up to the captain. The captain asked him the question, What is your name, boy? And he immediately answered, My name is Richard King, and you can either throw me overboard or put me to work, but I'm not going back. The captain seemed to be impressed by this young man's attitude, so he put him to work. He served as the cabin boy for the remainder of that voyage and did a fine job for the captain. So when this ship got to its final destination, which was Mobile, Alabama, the captain of the ship believed that this kid had a future in the maritime trade. He was unusually bright. He was a very hard worker. He also realized that an ocean-going vessel is probably not the best place to raise an 11-year-old boy. For the next several years,
2: King works in a variety of capacities on several different ships. He demonstrates such intelligence, talent, and leadership that two different ship captains school him in navigation in command of a ship. By the time he is 16, he has a pilot's license and knows the Gulf Coast and the rivers of the Cotton Kingdom like the back of his hand. In 1842, King lists for service in the Seminole War in Florida. It is during his Seminole War service that he meets Mifflin Kennedy, another ship's officer. King and Kennedy will become lifelong friends. Kennedy had been born in Pennsylvania and, like King, had first gone to sea as a cabin boy and worked his way up to become a ship's pilot. By 1843, Richard King has grown and matured. The 19-year-old is square-jawed, well-muscled, and tall for the times, at 5 feet 11 inches. When provoked, he can turn the air purple with profanity. That makes his friendship with the soft-spoken Quaker, Nifflin Kennedy, something of a surprise. In 1847, Richard King enlists for a second war, taking command of the ship Colonel Cross, and rises to rank of captain, in the U.S. Navy during the Mexican War. King serves for the war's duration, transporting troops and supplies. He becomes intimately familiar with the Texas and Mexican coasts and with the Rio Grande River. It is during his service in the Mexican War that King recognizes steamship service would revolutionize the commerce of South Texas, especially the Rio Grande Valley. When the war ends, he buys this ship he commands as war surplus and is often steaming. King soon forms a partnership with his old friend, Mifflin Kennedy. By the mid-1850s, their company is operating more than two dozen ships, and thanks in part to their low rates, they are monopolizing shipping on the Rio Grande River. They will continue in this preeminent position for more than two decades.
3: Here again is William Yancey. In 1850, Captain King had been on a steamboat run to Rio Grande City and back. he had had a rough couple of days. he had had problems with his sailors. he had had problems with the engines on his steamboats. The final straw was when he got back to Brownsville. He went to moor his steamboat in the slip where he normally kept it, and somebody already had a boat there. Today, there was a steamboat in this slip. Now, everybody in Brownsville knew not to park their steamboats there because that was Richard King's slip, but today there's a steamboat there. Well, this sent him over the edge. He starts cursing a blue streak. Had to go down the river a little ways, found an empty slip to Morris boat, and he starts walking back towards this houseboat, and he's about to give the occupant of this houseboat a piece of his mind. Well, he never got a chance to do that. There was a young lady on the houseboat who had heard him, and she decided to confront him first. And the two walk towards each other. And this young lady says, essentially, who do you think you are using language like that? This is my father's houseboat. He has just as much right to be here as you do. Why don't you spend less time making a fool of yourself and more time washing your filthy boat? And at that, Richard King didn't really have a response. He's not someone who was left speechless very often. But this time he was left speechless. He turned around and he walked back to his boat. And then he and his sailors spent the rest of the afternoon washing that boat. Over the next several days, he couldn't get this young lady out of his mind. So he's going to go to his best friend and business partner, Mifflin Kennedy. So he goes to Kennedy and asks him, who's the young lady whose father's houseboat's parked in my slip? And Kennedy says, well, that's Miss Henrietta Chamberlain. Her father's the new Presbyterian minister in town. Kennedy said there's only one way you're gonna get to meet her and that's if you start going to church with her. Well over the next several weeks and months he becomes a very faithful Presbyterian. He um, is there every time the doors of the church are open and to make a long story short he'll begin a four-year courtship of Miss Henrietta but eventually the two of them will be married in 1854 there in Brownsville. Uh, Her father performed the ceremony. The ceremony was at their church.
2: King takes risks when those with fainter hearts shy away. He steams sections of the Rio Grande where others think it impossible to go. He designs ships specifically for the fast currents and narrow bends of the river, enabling him to reach destinations previously considered impossibly remote. While dominating trade on the Rio Grande, King recognizes that much of the land of South Western Texas would not support farming, but would be good for cattle. As a result, he begins to buy property, including the 53,000-acre Santa Gertrudis grant. He pays $1,800 for the grant, thought by many to be near worthless because recurrent droughts leave much of the area a wasteland. King reckons he can overcome the dry spells by damming a river and building a reservoir. When a drought does hit, King's cattle have plenty to drink, and he is able to buy cattle for next to nothing from dry properties and increase his herd by thousands.
3: In 1854, Captain Richard King is going to find some help for his cattle operation from an unlikely source. During the 1850s, he made several trips to Mexico to buy cattle to stock his ranch with. Now, one particular occasion, he went to a village called Cruias, which was in the state of Tamaulipas, maybe 100 miles southwest of Matamoros. This village at the time was well known for its cattle herds and for its vaqueros, or cowboys, but they were in the middle of a three-year drought. All the grass was dead. There wasn't any water. The cattle were dying. So Richard King goes there, and he makes a pitch to the villagers because they owned the herd in common. And he basically said to them, why don't you sell me your entire herd? If you don't, they're all gonna die, and this way you'll have money in your pocket and you can start over. So the villagers said, let us think about it, you go away, come back tomorrow morning, we'll have an answer for you. So Captain King went away for the evening, he came back the next day, and the villagers said, here's what we're willing to do. We're willing to sell you the entire herd, if you'll take as many of us as wanna go back to your ranch and we'll work that herd for you. Well, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? He needs help, they need cattle to work. So about 100 villagers are gonna come back to the ranch in Texas with Captain King at that point. They become the first vaqueros or cowboys on the ranch and over time, they take a lot of pride in working for Captain King. They start to call themselves kineños, which roughly translated means king's men or king's people.
2: Whenever he can, King buys more land. His philosophy is simple. Buy land and never sell.
0: And when we come back, we continue the story of Richard King here on Our American Story. return to our American stories and the remarkable story of Cattle King, Richard King. Let's continue where we last left off.
2: During the Civil War, Texas secedes from the Union, joins the Confederacy. Within months, the US Navy effectively blockades the Gulf Coast, cutting off the South's greatest source of income, cotton exports. In these dire circumstances, King becomes one of the Confederacy's heroes, a blockade runner. He is so successful that he becomes a legend. It doesn't hurt that he is handsome and well built. He becomes a real life Rhett Butler. All we've got is cotton and slaves and arrogance. Union forces raid the King Ranch late in 1863 and loot and burn everything they can. However, their principal target, Richard King, escapes. And when the Confederates retake South Texas in 1864, King is back in business. With the Confederates' surrender in April 1865 though, King slips into Mexico. King's story might have ended right there. But late in 1865, he secures a pardon from President Andrew Johnson and resumes all of his former activities. Here again is William Yancey, historian at Texas
3: A&M University, Kingsville. Now it's not until 1867 before he really starts to re-establish his full-time cattle operation, and that just goes to show what good sense of timing the man had. Because around 1867, there started to develop a huge market for beef in the Northeast. As the Northeast becomes more industrialized, people are moving into cities, so they're not raising and growing their own food. You also have a large influx of immigrants from Europe. There is a need for beef, and Richard King becomes one of the first South Texas ranchers to realize that you can make quite a bit of money supplying that need. Now. At the time, there aren't very many railroads in Texas, so in order to get the beef to where it is needed, you have to walk them to where the railroads were, and that meant cattle drives. Richard King will become one of the first South Texas ranchers to drive cattle, specifically the Texas Longhorn, from his ranch in South Texas to railheads, first in Missouri and then later in Kansas. At the time, you could purchase Longhorns for between 2 to $4 a head in South Texas, sell them for around $20 a head in Fort Worth, maybe even as high as 40 by the time you got to Kansas. And Captain King was able to make a considerable amount of money doing this. Eventually, longhorns, however, are going to fall out of favor in northeastern markets. The problem with longhorns is their beef is very tough and stringy. And uh, eventually, as railroads start to penetrate more of the country, it's easier for ranchers in other areas to raise better tasting breeds of beef, load them onto railroad cars, and ship them to slaughterhouses in Chicago for movement on to the east.
2: In 1869, he leads his first herd north on the Long Drive. For King, coming from his ranch in the extreme southwestern region of Texas, the drive to the Kansas railheads is more than 1,200 miles. Despite the length of the drive, and losses to stampede swollen streams and Indians. King makes enormous profits. From 1869 through 1884, King sends well more than 100,000 head of cattle to the railheads in Kansas or to ranges of the Northern High Plains. He continues to plow his profit back into cattle and land until he has hundreds of thousands of acres and tens of thousands of cattle. If Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind is a Richard King-like character during the Civil War, then Tom Dunson is a Richard King-like character in Red River. you earned it. King's great cattle operation is not without problems, which include regular cross-border raids by Mexican bandidos such as Juan Cortina and Juan Flores. In three years, King loses 33,000 head of cattle. He asks the state for help, but the governor refuses. In 1867, King begins to fence his huge ranch. At first, his crews put up wooden fences. After bob wire appears in 1874, the work goes faster. In 1883 alone, the ranch uses 190,000 pounds of bob wire. During the mid-1870s, King wages a personal war with Flores and his banditos. Entirely at his own expense, King supplies Captain Lee McNally and his company of Texas Rangers with horses, food, and the latest Winchester rifles for pursuit of the banditos. McNally is spectacularly successful, but not without controversy he not only pursues the Mexican bandits through Texas, but right into Mexico. In Mexico, he destroys several bandito sanctuaries and defeats a Mexican army. While the U.S. government is apoplectic over McNally's border crossing, Richard King couldn't be happier. By the time of his death in 1885, King has increased the size of his ranch to 614,000 acres, and those are acres he actually owns rather than leases from the government. Following his instructions to buy land and never sell, his son-in-law, Robert Clayburg, adds more acreage to the ranch until by the 1890s the King Ranch is larger than the state of Rhode Island. Like the eastern industrial barons, King tries to control all businesses related to his ranching operation. He invests in railroads, feedlots, packing houses, ice plants, harbors, and ships. King in many ways is a king. To improve his longhorns, King brings in Durham bulls from Kentucky. His goal is to produce a steer with a longhorn's toughness and a Durham's bulk. Here again is Professor
3: Yancey. In 1940, the U.S. Department of Agriculture would recognize the Santa Gertrudis breed as the first breed of beef cattle produced in the Western Hemisphere, and really the first anywhere in the world in over a hundred years.
2: In pursuing his dream, Richard King invents modern ranching. Farmers before him tended to raise cattle as a sideline. In the cities, fresh meat was a luxury few could afford. The King Ranch turns ranching into a big business. It also helps turn Americans into a nation of beef eaters. Richard King is a colorful character whose violent temper and wild, rough-hewn nature never diminish with age. King gets in several fights in his lifetime and seems to enjoy them. On one occasion, a big, angry cowboy exclaims to King that if he were not Captain King, the great cattle baron, he would not be able to get away with the vain remarks that he just made. King is no longer a young man, but the old cattleman explodes. Damn you. Forget the riches and the captain title, and let's fight. And fight they do. It is one of the best fights anybody can recall. A cowboy and the captain pummel each other with vicious blows for half an hour. Then, bloody and arm-wearing, they shake hands. Thereafter, the cowboy says he will stand back-to-back with King anywhere and any time, and die for him if need be. We tend to think of Hollywood's portrayals of the cattle kings of the Old West as exaggerated. Actually, a close look at Richard King demonstrates that such a classic Western as Red River And John Wayne's character of Tom Dunson told a tale no taller than the facts of the real life of Richard King. And great job to Greg
0: Hangler and special thanks as always to Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen and Vigilantes, and also a special shout out to William Yancey, historian at Texas A&M University, Kingsville. Richard King's story here on Our American Story.
2: For more,
1: go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.
0: This is our American stories, and today we bring you the story of Tom Ryan, and Tom is a 95-year-old listener of our show on KABC in Los Angeles. Tom had an unusual upbringing. He grew up on Long Island, New York, living behind a funeral parlor run by his family. And he wrote a book about it entitled "Love in the Ashes." Today we bring you the second of his stories for us. Something tells me there are going to be a lot more. This one is called A Grave Escape. While not a love story like the last, it's just as wild. Here's Tom.
4: I was there on Saturday morning when the sheriff arrived to talk to Grandma. It was the day after the big snowstorm. My folks were away and I had stayed with Grandma overnight. At age 10, I was too young to stay home alone, but staying at Grandma's was not too cool either, because, you see, she ran a funeral home. Sometimes there were dead bodies only a few steps from the living room at the back of the house where we watched TV. It was hard to get too relaxed when I looked over at the dark doorway leading to the bodies. That Friday night, There was a very old lady being waked in one of the chapels. Mrs. Jackson, a friend of grandma's who had died of cancer. The sheriff sat at the kitchen table with his notebook in front of him. He asked grandma if anything unusual had happened the last night because they were searching for an escaped convict from a prison two towns away. He is a murderer and very dangerous the sheriff said. They were setting up roadblocks to try to catch him. Grandma didn't answer directly, but said, we have a funeral going out this morning, old Mrs. Jackson. We had to put her in a closed casket because the cancer was so bad. Will the hearse and the limos be able to get to the cemetery? Grandma asked. Yes, the sheriff replied. The road is open to the cemetery. What about anything happening last night? Grandma gave me a stern look that he couldn't see and told him nothing had happened. It was real quiet, she said. I didn't say a word, but as soon as the sheriff left, I asked her, what was going on? It wasn't like Grandma to lie. She just shook her head and started to cry. I thought back about last night and remembered that shortly before dark, Grandma kept looking out the side window on the driveway every few minutes since she was expecting a delivery of new caskets. Suddenly, there were yellow headlights shining on the snow outside the window, and a loud knocking came on the side door where the caskets were brought in. Fred, the driver, shouted, I have to hurry before I get snowed in. He had unloaded two caskets and started on another one. Wait, Grandma said, I only ordered two, not three. I have to leave this one too, Fred said. I'll never get to the funeral home in the next town and I don't want the weight on my truck. Okay, Grandma said, if it helps you out. After he was gone, Grandma closed up tight My folks were supposed to call to see how things were, but the phone wasn't working. The TV weatherman said the lines were down all over and roads were closed, so we were all by ourselves. After a while, I started to fall asleep, and Grandma helped me upstairs and put me into a soft feather bed. She left the door open a little so some light came in. I remember that I fell asleep, but woke up later when I thought I heard voices downstairs. I had started to get out of bed, but it was so cold, I crawled back in. The next morning, I asked Grandma about it, but she said I must have dreamed it. Later in the morning, the men who worked for Grandma came in and then loaded the casket into the hearse. When my folks came to pick me up, I saw Grandma holding onto my father's arm and talking to him. I heard her say, I need your help. She took him into their office and closed the door. I thought I heard her crying. It was five years later when Grandma died that my folks told me the real story of what had happened that Friday night. It seemed that the voices I thought I had heard were those of Grandma and the escaped convict. The caskets that were delivered that night were made by prison labor, and the convict, with the nickname of Rabbit, had hidden in one of those empty caskets. When the delivery man had left, Rabbit had opened the inside latch and let himself out of the casket. He didn't know, however, that grandma had fallen asleep in her big chair in the living room and she woke up startled and scared to see him standing near the fireplace holding a large knife he had taken from the embalming room threatening her to silence by holding the knife under her throat he asked for car keys and money but grandma didn't have a car and didn't drive When he realized that the storm had blocked the roads and there was no phone service, he asked Grandma when someone was coming with a car. She told him that there was one funeral schedule for the next morning if the roads were open and men coming with a hearse and limousine. When he saw some of my things on the couch and found out that I was upstairs, Grandma pleaded with him to let me sleep. She would help him get in the casket with Mrs. Jackson and be taken away in the hearse the next morning to the cemetery. He could then sneak out of the casket when it was left in the cemetery storeroom for a few minutes until the family arrived. Rabbit didn't like the idea at all, especially getting into the coffin with a dead lady. He decided that he had no other choice, but he made it very clear to Grandma that if she was fooling him, and he was caught, he would escape again and kill not only her, but also all of her family. Grandma was terrified by this evil man. It was arranged that early on Saturday morning, Rabbit would get into the casket, and then Grandma would close it and latch it shut. He was very hesitant, especially when he saw and smelled old Mrs. Jackson. But finally, he climbed in, holding his nose and threatening Grandma with a painful death if things didn't work out. He also ordered Grandma to get him some hot coffee in a thermos so that he could drink it when it got cold in the casket. And she did so just before closing the lid. The plan did work. When the man came and took the casket away, and loaded it into the hearse. Grandma hadn't said anything about Rabbit being in the casket. After his private meeting with Grandma, my dad had immediately called the sheriff and arranged to stop in and see him. The police still hadn't found Rabbit, despite the roadblocks and searches of the nearby forests. They were mystified as to how he could have disappeared so completely. Sheriff, my dad said, as you know, this man was a murderer who would stop at nothing to escape. He told the sheriff how Rabbit had hidden in the casket at the prison and had ended up in grandma's funeral home. He also explained how Rabbit had threatened grandma and her family, so she was forced to help him escape in Mrs. Jackson's casket. What? said the sheriff. Why didn't she call me as soon as he was in the casket? I could have nabbed him right then and there. She was too scared, sheriff. But my dad continued a little smile playing around his lips and pride in his voice. She was also smart enough to have slipped a large amount of sleeping pills into the coffee she gave him to drink in the casket. The sheriff thought for a moment and said, "'Wait, if Rabbit drank that coffee, "'heck, he might have been buried alive in the casket with Mrs. Jackson.' The sheriff almost shouted as he got his phone out, "'We'll have to dig up the casket immediately. "'If we find him in the casket, "'I may have to take Grandma into custody. "'She could be in a lot of trouble.' "'Wait,' my dad said. "'Wait a minute, sheriff, before you do anything.' Wait, no, no, we can't lose any more time. That man may still be alive. If there was enough air in the casket, maybe he is. The sheriff was now calling to his assistance as he rose from his chair. Get the car ready, ready to roll, and call the coroner. No, sheriff, please listen, my father replied quietly. Sit down a minute. You see, there is no casket. No casket? The sheriff looked confused. Of course there was a casket. They had the funeral, and it was buried this morning. No, my father replied quietly. You see, Sheriff, Mrs. Jackson's last wishes were that she be cremated.
0: My goodness, it does not get better than that, folks, and that's why I say something tells me we'll be hearing more from Tom Ryan and by the way, we want your stories. And as you can tell, we don't discriminate 95, 10 years old, the North, the South, the East, the West, Christian, atheist, we don't care. We love a good story. Tom Ryan's story, his grandma's story, my goodness, poor rabbit's story, here on Our American Stories.
2: Hi, this is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here, I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories, and you can find them on ouramericannetwork.org. But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to yourstory at oanetwork.org. That's yourstory at oanetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it.
0: This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything. And one of the most intriguing stories that I've come across in a long time was captured by Brantley Hargrove, who's a journalist and has written for Wired, Popular Mechanics, and Texas Monthly. We talked with Brantley about his book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of the Legendary Tornado Chaser, Tim Samaras.
5: Yeah, Tim was just this uh, middle-class kid from the suburbs of Denver. He grew up uh, in this little bungalow in Lakewood, Colorado. And, uh, you know, I mean, he was kind of an unusual kid in some ways. Um, You know, most kids are playing with, you know, action figures or whatever. He was uh, taking apart his parents' appliances. Uh, I mean, for some reason, he just really liked to take apart the blender or the television set, uh, just to figure out what made them go. I mean, he just, he simply couldn't take for granted the fact that they actually worked. He had, he had this innate curiosity. Uh, and so, you know, his dad, just just to keep, you know, keep him away from their appliances. Uh, he actually went out into the, out into the neighborhood, out into the, you know, sort of the outlying community and, uh, would pick up like these old radios, these big, you know, radios with the, the dials on them. And, uh, he'd bring them back to Tim just to give him something to tinker with. And, uh, Tim would. Uh, he sometimes he'd fix them. I mean, if they weren't working, so, I mean he had this he had this natural gift for uh, figuring out what was wrong with a piece of equipment, electronics, and uh, putting it back together again.
0: Well, I love the title of chapter two: A Boy with an Engineer's Mind. He also had an imagination too, and a movie really struck him. And maybe in the end, uh, this is Brantley what led him to his obsession with storm chasing. Talk about the Wizard of Oz
5: you know, he's probably six years old, uh, Wizard of Oz was, was on primetime, it was a Sunday evening, and his parents drug the dining room table into the living room and served dinner in there, and uh, that's where Tim saw the Wizard of Oz for the first time, and uh, I mean, he was, once that tornado started churning toward Dorothy and Toto, he was completely transfixed by the image on screen, he just couldn't believe it, um, just this this image of, of power, and uh, you know, the, the rest of the film really didn't didn't interest him all that much he'd get kind of bored once they started hitting the yellow brick road but uh you know forevermore he would be he'd be drawn to that that image and you know he, he couldn't believe that there was there were such things near his home and he wanted to wanted to see one for himself someday
0: yeah and it's interesting Colorado's where storms set up as they head into the great plains uh talk about how that impacted him too just where he lived his the geography and how that might have factored into things
5: Right, well, yeah, he's 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 in he's in near Denver, so it's uh, he's got he's got these storms coming up against the Rockies. Um, you know, these, these these occasionally violent thunderstorms that are known to produce tornadoes, and so he was in a he was in a in a, a region, in an environment uh, where he could see such things. I mean, he did. He, you know, when he was uh, he was a young kid, he saw his first first funnel cloud in the sky. So I mean, that that, that sort of just uh, ignited even further this fire that had first begun uh, with The Wizard of Oz.
0: Indeed. Now, he's not your typical high school grad. A lot of kids go to college. But Tim, well, he starts knocking on the door of the Denver Research Institute, and they want him to get a resume together. And my goodness, uh, your writing about this is fabulous. And it reminds me of the Wright Brothers, because uh, David McCullough's book about the Wright Brothers, you know, here are all these PhDs and scientists trying to get up into into the air. And these two bicycle mechanics are, well, they're they're sort of playing around and goofing off. Uh, with their own wind tunnels that they created themselves, and then out in Kitty Hawk, talk about that application! What chutzpah it took for a kid to try and get a job at one of the top research science facilities in
5: America? Yeah, I mean it's it, 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 it's it's amazing chutzpah. uh You know, he's 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 walking into uh, the Denver Research Institute, which is a uh, an applied uh, an, an applied science outfit. They do all sorts of explosives work for the military, and basically these. These guys are just geeks who use really um, high-tech research-grade electronics to study all sorts of violent forces, among other things. And so Tim walks in. You know, he's he's, I think he's 20 or 21. uh, You know, walking in with uh, holes in his jeans and and a T-shirt. You know, doesn't even bring in his own resume. I mean, I don't think he'd ever drawn one up. Uh, And so he gets talking to the guy who runs runs the outfit, Larry Brown. And um, you know, I mean, Larry Brown can see this this guy is clearly conversant. but you know, maybe not even the most uh, qualified person uh, that he's talked to for this job. And so he's like, all right, Tim, well, you know, this is interesting, but why don't you come back with a resume? And so Tim does, and, uh, you know, it's it's this yellow sheet of paper onto which he's handwritten his, um, his, his expertise, which includes working uh, at a mom and pop radio repair shop. So, I mean, it's not a whole lot there, but, Yeah, I mean, Larry goes with his gut. He likes Tim. He he sees that Tim has a natural ability, and he seems pretty cool too. So he's like, "All right, I'm going to give this kid a chance." And he does. And uh, you know, I mean, by by the time Tim is uh, you know 20 years old, he's he's got a Pentagon security clearance.
0: It's amazing. It's amazing. By the way, no college education. No college education, but a guy like Brown who trusted his gut instincts. I mean, you got to you got to give him credit. A lot of people would have said, "No paper, no credentials, no job."
5: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Brown, Brown saw something in Tim that was, I think, harder to quantify.
0: Indeed. I love the chapter's title, This Love Affair with the Sky, because in the end, this is what happens with Tim. You write, quote, he begins to tackle tornadoes in the methodical way he does everything else. He studies them, figures out how they work, just as he did many years before with his mom's blender. Self-taught all the way, wasn't this man?
5: Yeah, he completely was. I mean, this is this is sort of a pattern that's been set up since he was a, a kid, you know. He's like, this interests me. I'm going to figure out everything I can about it, uh largely by myself. And that's what he did. I mean, you know, it, it, except for uh, you know, I think this is probably the first time he ever actually enjoyed sitting in a classroom. He did take a storm spotting course and, you know, some basic meteorology through uh, Skywarn, which uh, partners with the National Weather Service. But by, by and large, he was, you know, he was teaching himself. He was reading, you know, everything he could, and, uh, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how do I go out myself and find these storms, and, and how can I make myself of use to the National Weather Service? I mean, he was also one of their spotters, so he'd be the guy out there giving them the on-the-ground intelligence about what actually is happening, because, you know, uh, uh, radar can tell us that there is a, a, a storm that, you know, has some evidence of tornadic rotation, but it can't necessarily tell you the tornado on the ground. And Tim would be the guy who'd be out there in the field with eyes on the storm telling them, you know, in fact, there is a tornado or there isn't one.
0: When we return, more with Brantley Hargrove, who's written so beautifully about the life and death of storm chaser Tim Samaris. This is Our American Stories. Brantley Hargrove, author of The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. We were talking about the virtually non-existent state of tornado science leading up to the time when Samaras and a small band of researchers started looking at this force of nature.
5: Tornadoes were so inexplicable, um, so poorly understood that uh, you know, uh, atmospheric scientists, uh, meteorologists, you know, the government was just like, hey, look, let's let's we can't even bother with trying to predict these things. There's no point in warning people about the possibility of tornadoes if we have really no ability to uh, predict where they're going to occur and when with any kind of specificity. And so, uh, yeah, you know, with, with the uh, you know the signal services, the Army Signal Services, which is you know initially in charge of uh, you know national weather forecasting, and then the Weather Bureau. I mean, it was just it, it was it was the word you didn't really utter. And so, I mean, we didn't even really start making, uh, you know, any kinds of tornado forecasts until, you know, into the 1950s. I mean, it's kind of remarkable when you think about it. We just we just did not understand them well enough to predict them. Um, and so, you know, up through, up through uh, you know, whenever Tim kind of arrives on the scene and, and begins his own research, uh, you know, we, we had come a long way, but there were still, you know, there were still a lot of, of unanswered questions. I mean, we had just developed... <clears throat> in the 70s, you know, the 60s and 70s Doppler radar. And then mobile Doppler didn't even come onto the scene until uh, the 90s, which would allow us to scan at, you know, somewhat close range of these tornadoes in, in detail. And so we, were ju- we just had this really essential tool come on the scene. Uh, and we're, and we're, you know, we're learning quite a bit. However, I mean, there, the mobile radar, even, even when you can drag it out into close proximity with the storm, it, it, it left some blind spots. Uh, it couldn't scan in that lowest, you know, 50 meters or so. Uh, and that's, a, that's a, pretty crucial, a pretty crucial spot. I mean, that's where, you know, that, that's where these winds, um, you know, it's where they begin to coalesce. I mean, you know, how can you, how can you predict them if you can't understand how the low-level environment is, is connected to the broader storm environment? And so that was kind of one place that where Tim was hoping he could fill in the blanks was that this low level environment, that, you know, was essentially terra incognita. We knew nothing about it. We had no we had no data, no measurements from it.
0: The chapter, The Spark, there's a man who named Frank Tatum uh, from Huntsville, Alabama. And people may not know this about Huntsville, but it's one of the great science research uh, spots in the whole country. Uh, talk about the role that Frank played in young Tim's life.
5: Yeah, Frank was was the spark in my opinion. Um, you know, he was uh, he was this um explosives expert. Um, uh, in there in Huntsville and you know, back in 89, Huntsville got hit by a, a really violent tornado. You know, it, it killed uh, I think a couple dozen people. And uh, you know, in the aftermath, he heard a lot of weird things that sort of struck him. Uh, and and were in some ways, you know, uh they related to his his own research. You know, he was hearing that there were all these people who were, uh, you know, they were feeling these tremors through the ground as the tornado approached. Uh, and I mean, these weren't Yahoo's who were saying this. This was like the emergency manager. It was like a preacher who was in the basement sheltering with, you know, some people from his congregation. Were saying, yeah, I felt these, I felt these tremors coming through the ground. And so he's like, okay. I mean, could a tornado measurably transfer energy into the ground to the extent that you know, you'd actually create some kind of shockwave? And uh, what he found, you know, whenever he went to a, a USGS, um, you know, Geological Service uh, uh, site where they had some, um, you know, they had some geophones in the ground, you know, he found out that they actually did. There were actually seismic signals being created by these tornadoes. And So he set out to uh, uh, build this device um, with federal funding uh, that he hoped would be, uh, you know, would serve as an early warning network. He would, he would use it to detect seismic signals uh, of tornadoes, uh, you know, and, and to give, you know, maybe a little bit better of a, an advance heads up. Uh, and so he, he built these devices. But, you know, Frank was not a storm chaser. He didn't really know how to go find tornadoes and, you know, put these, you know, somewhere near the path so that they could, you know, either pick up or not pick up on these uh, these seismic signals. And so he, he started reaching out to all these storm chasers that he'd heard about throughout the U.S. And Tim's was one of those names who came up as, you know, kind of one of these prominent or sort of legendary storm chasers.
0: Yep, and Tatum asked him from your book, quote, can you get my invention close to a tornado? Can you help me find out if it actually works? That's quite a thing to ask a guy, isn't it?
5: <laughs> well, I mean, if if he knew Tim, he would know that was a question. It was almost as if he'd been waiting his whole life to be asked. I mean, you know, Tim had been, he'd seen this, uh, this Nova documentary on PBS a few, you know, a decade before, I think. Um, where these uh, where these scientists from the National Severe Storm Laboratories and Oklahoma University were were you know going out chasing down these tornadoes with this you know with this instrument that they developed um, called the Totable Tornado Observatory. They were trying to deploy this instrument to get these to get these long sought after measurements from the core of a tornado, and they weren't successful. But I mean, Tim had been captivated by this by this documentary, by the, you know this idea of these scientists going out chasing tornadoes down, and so what Tatum was offering him was a mission that sounded a whole lot like what these scientists had done. And so, I mean, he couldn't say no. Tim
0: is not happy with the, the, the probes that have been created. So in the end he creates this thing himself called the turtle probe. Talk about the turtle probe, Tim's invention.
5: Right. Well, the turtle probe was, um, uh, quite different from everything that had preceded it. Um, you know, a lot of the previous inventions, uh, you know, none of which managed to get into the core of the tornado. You know, and a lot of attention was paid to uh, you know, the, the aerodynamic profile. And you know, up to that point, it hadn't mattered because they hadn't gotten into a place where that would, where that would be of, of utmost importance. And, and Tim did pay a great deal of attention to its aerodynamic profile. He, 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 he conceived this device whose, whose, whose profile was inspired actually by uh, previous, um, a previous instrument that had been devised by, you know, another guy at uh, Applied Research Associates, where he was now working. Uh, It was an intercontinental ballistic missile launch vehicle that was supposed to be able to withstand a nuclear shockwave. And what Tim did is he he took those plans and he he scaled down and adapted uh, to his his use. Uh, So he built this thing that, you know, okay, if it can survive a nuclear shockwave, surely it'll be okay in a tornado. And so he, he built this device it was about you know twenty inches across about six inches tall you know sort of conical in shape kind of like a like a, a Vietnamese uh, a traditional Vietnamese hat uh, and it was filled with uh, you know pressure transducers sensors for temperature and humidity and this and a data logger that were core measurements from all these sensors uh, ten times per second and it was it was you know it was to that point it was uh, one of the most aerodynamically and just, you know, in terms of the instrumentation, the most advanced uh, in-situ probe that had ever been devised.
0: And the problem now is, as you put it in the book, the easy part was making the device, which, by the way, is not easy, but the hard part is getting a a tornado to go over that device. That's no duck walk, and that's dangerous work. Uh, Talk about uh, Tim's attitude about that. Again, he was no daredevil, but he knew to get this probe placed in the right places meant... Taking bigger and more profound risks with his life.
5: Sure. Well, you know, finding tornadoes to begin with is is, is difficult. Uh, you know, Tim Tim was well well acquainted with that struggle. I mean, you know, you for every every tornado you see, you strike out on probably at least five other uh, events. Um, so yeah, I mean, he, first of all, he's dealing with that, just the difficulty in finding these things. Uh, then there's the difficulty if you do of Maneuvering ahead of them, so you've got to position yourself in such a way that you'll be able to stay, you know, probably roughly to the north and slightly ahead of the tornadoes. It's moving uh, to be able to drop down front and intercept. Uh, So, you know, to add to all this, uh, he also knew that if he's going to deploy this thing into the core, he's going to have to get in front of the tornado. I mean, even more, even in a more extreme position than he'd been in uh, with Frank Tatum's uh, instrument. He's going to have to wait until the tornado is really close, because tornadoes, they swerve. I mean, they, they, don't, they don't travel in a straight line. they are all sorts of little da- bobs and weaves in their tracks. And so that means he has to get really, really close, probably closer than anybody's really ever gotten um, and survived, uh, to deploy this thing. This mission that he's taken on is, uh, is far more dangerous than anything he's ever done.
0: And when we come back, we're going to continue with this remarkable story of Tim Samaras. as told by Brantley Hargrove. And the book is called The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. And I would urge you to go to the bookstore, pick this up, or just get it off Amazon. And again, it's The Man Who Caught the Storm. And what a writer and what a passion Brantley has for this subject. He himself, a storm chaser. And he himself, deeply captivated by this magic that Mother Nature creates. When we continue, we return with the life of Tim Samaras, his story, here on Our American Story. Hargrove, author of The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. At this point, people were beginning to become skeptical of Tim's mission because he kept getting near misses, like what happened in Stratford, Texas, for example.
5: He'd been trying to deploy on several tornadoes, um, you know, the year before and got really close. And I think he was learning more and more just how close he needed to be uh, to pull this off. And so in Stratford, Texas in 2003, um, you know, there were, there were all sorts of risks that he was courting that day. I mean, as he maneuvered in front of this, uh, uh, this, to- uh, this oncoming tornado in uh, the Texas panhandle, um, I mean, there was, there was baseball-sized hail coming down. I mean, he, he could easily have been uh, brained by a baseball-sized chunk of hail. I mean, that, that stuff's fatal. Uh, so, he, you know, he jumps out of his minivan uh, with his, uh, you know, he's got his partner in there uh, filming for the scientific record. And there's this tornado in the distance, you know, clearly approaching. It's kind of this sort of multiple vortex circulation uh, moving in at about, you know, probably 30 miles per hour. And so, Tim, uh, you know, he, he drops his, his probe. Uh, you know, they're, they're starting to be able to hear the roar of the tornado. He jumps back in the minivan and they take off and they get overtaken by the, um, you know, the rain curtains and the outer circulation. And they're getting battered by some pretty intense winds. I mean, winds, you know, approaching 100 miles per hour at least. And, I mean, they've got, they've got telephone poles bending into the road and some are falling into the road. He's having to swerve into the oncoming lane of traffic. You know, fortunately, there's nobody out there just to steer clear of these telephone poles. And this is, I think this is the first time at least, you know, that I've heard, and I've watched a bunch of Tim's uh, storm-chasing footage. This is the first time I really heard true fear in his voice and I think he felt at that moment like he had pushed it way too far and that you know they were going to pay the consequences and I mean he was he was he managed to get out but uh, it was a, it was a really close brush
0: let's fast forward to manchester south dakota because this day June 24 2003 changes tim's life and it changes meteorology and storm science talk about that day
4: yeah, this was uh, a day
5: that started out with a lot of frustration. I mean, you know, t- by this point, Tim has been out on the road for several years uh, trying to deploy on these tornadoes with, um, you know, limited success. You know, he's gotten close, but he hasn't gotten that singular uh, deployment that he's been shooting for. And so, you know, he, he gets onto a, a tornado in, um, a w- near Woonsocket, South Dakota, and the, and the dang thing it keeps to the fields the whole time tim can't deploy on a tornado in the fields he needs it to cross a navigable road and this thing you know it, it dies right before it gets to the first navigable road he could possibly deploy on so he's you know he's pretty dispirited um you know it, it, it's it's june uh 24th i believe and you know he's getting towards the end of the season uh you know this is this is very late in tornado season you know after this uh, it looks like there's going to be a high-pressure ridge. It's going to deplete all the storm potential after that. Um, but as he's collecting his probes, you know, this this, this guy who's with him notices um, this this splash of golden uh, sunlight uh, refracting off of the backside of a storm to the east. And, you know, Tim jumps into the minivan and sees that there's a pretty vigorous radar signature um, within that storm. You know, there's a, there's a hook echo. This could very well be. Uh, an ongoing tornado. So he gathers up his probes as quickly as he can, and then lights out down the highway east toward the storm. And uh, as he approaches, uh, he sees that there is uh, an enormous tornado on the horizon. I mean, in, in my opinion, this is probably the biggest uh, and most violent tornado he's ever he's ever actually encountered. Uh, this is this is the shot he's been waiting for, really, his whole life. Um, and his, his, the partner is with him. It's his, uh, his brother-in-law, Pat Porter. You know, he, actually, he actually asks, are, are we going to deploy on that thing? And Tim's like, damn right. Uh, and so he approaches this thing down the highway. And it's, it's, it's closing in on the highway. And he realizes that, uh, that his, you know, his approach is all wrong. He can't deploy here. He can't accurately gauge its forward speed, um, its, its, its trajectory. Uh, Trying to get on that highway in front of that tornado would be almost suicide. So he kind of pauses for a second, uh, then realizes that he's got, you know, to the north, and this thing's moving off to the northeast. To the north, there's a a good grid of uh, dirt roads. And he doesn't, you know, it's not optimal to be on dirt roads because dirt roads get wet and then they get bogged down. But he's going to give it a shot. So he figures if he heads north on this dirt road uh, and can take the next east dirt road, that he can head the tornado off, drop his probe, and then head north as the tornado moves off to the northeast. So basically he's racing the tornado to this intersection, you know, a mile or so ahead. Uh, and so he, he, he takes off, and it's, it's a hairy ride. I mean, the, the, the road just turns to cake batter. They're fishtailing. Um, and, you know, at various points they lose sight of the tornado in the rain. I mean, it's, it's chewing through farmhouses. There's debris drifting everywhere. Um, but he gets to this place in the road, uh, you know, at this intersection, drops his probe and, and hauls as fast as he can. And uh, the tornado runs over his probe. I mean, it's it's, it's, a, it's a huge moment in, in, in the world of atmospheric science. You know, the first time uh, we had direct measurements from the core of a violent tornado. I mean, that was just something that uh, the research community wasn't sure that they would ever actually have.
0: And it was this guy, this sort of lone guy. I mean, there were many times people tried to partner in with him, but they were going to try and tell him how to do it. And he he had quite a number of failures in this regard, Brantley. But in the end, he had to do it his way, and he had to rely on his gut and his intuition. He laid that probe down 82 seconds before the tornado struck. That's crazy. But he managed to register the steepest drop in barometric pressure ever recorded, which got him a mention in the Guinness Book of World Records, Brantley, and obviously, it changed his life.
5: Oh, yeah. I mean, this was, this was his, his name was on the lips of uh, every uh, atmospheric scientist uh, in the world today. I mean, that was a huge moment. And I, you know, it, brought him, it brought him a certain amount of fame. I mean, the guy was on, uh, you know, he, he was on the cover of National Geographic. Uh, he was on CNN with Soledad O'Brien. He went on Oprah. I mean, Tim was, uh, you know, this was, this was a big moment. And Tim, uh, his life. Changed profoundly after that.
0: Let's talk about his son Paul because ultimately he would join Tim in this life. Uh, talk about the the relationship between father and son in the book.
5: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think at first, um, you know, the relationship between Tim and Paul was kind of like any father and son relationship in their teen years. I mean, I, I don't think they were incredibly close uh, early on. You know, I mean, I think it was just kind of the way it goes. Uh, Paul was, you know, sort of an, an introverted young man um, uh, who, uh, you know, wasn't sure exactly what he wanted to do with his life. Um, you know, once he graduated from high school, he sort of drifted to a couple of different options, but you know, just none of it seemed to stick. Uh, you know, and then he started going out and chasing with Tim, and I think that changed a lot of things for Paul, both personally and, you know, with his relationship with his father. I think it brought them closer together in a way they hadn't been before, and I think for Paul, he found a sort of purpose. You know, he he discovered uh, photography and, you know, I mean, as it turned out, you know, this this guy, this young man had an incredible eye. I mean, he was just a natural, uh, both with a camera and with a video camera. And so, you know, uh, Paul starts going, uh, you know, out every season with Tim and the crew, you know, and sometimes he'll ride in, in one of the, uh, you know, one of the other cars, you know, if there's if there's a room in Tim's truck. But uh, you know, he, he finds this community and this camaraderie with his father and this group of uh, chasers and researchers that Tim travels with, uh, and I think it was—you know—I think it was—I think it was the path Paul had been looking for.
0: And when you get a chance, take a look at some of the photography of Paul Samaras. It's remarkable. I mean, some of the landscapes and some of the nature shots that he captures, especially in the depths of these storms, the lightning, the cloud formations. It's just poetry. He had a gift, no doubt. And when we return, the final episode, the final chapter in this harrowing story, we return with the story of Tim Samaris, as told by Brantley Hargrove. The book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaris. More of this remarkable story, here on Our American Story. turn with Brantley Hargrove, the author of The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. And Tim's goal was to get the typical tornado warning time up from about 17 minutes to a full 30 minutes. That was about 13 extra minutes, which, of course, could mean a lot of saved lives.
5: Yeah, I mean, Tim, what what he was hoping, I think, was that his data... His data and not only his data but the, the data produced by his team you know he had this he had these other uh, researchers with him who surrounded the tornado with these sedan mounted sensors so they would sample the environment feeding the tornado basically what you know what what in the environment is making this tornado uh form what's making it intensify what's making it unravel and so what i think he was hoping was that his data paired with these uh, these other researchers data uh could give us a better understanding of what sorts of mechanisms and processes uh, are in the environment that lead to these really strong tornadoes. Uh, and, 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 and some days, whenever those tornadoes don't form, what are what are some of the mechanisms that are failing to fall into place? And so I think he was hopeful that his research could help identify something in the atmosphere on these really bad days. You know, these days like, you know, in 2011 with the Dixie Alley outbreak or, you know, uh, Moore, Oklahoma, 2013. What's, what is it in the sky on these days that, um, you know, makes these tornadoes uh, be so, you know, so intense and have such long tracks. Uh, and that's what his uh, his research group was out there to try to figure out.
0: Let's talk about El Reno, Oklahoma. And by the way, just not too long before El Reno, more Oklahoma tornado, which you just mentioned, came through. It was an EF5. And Samaris, well, he thought it was too dangerous a storm to chase. Again, getting at that idea that he was not a reckless man. Let's talk about El Reno, Oklahoma and, and that final day of tim and paul's life
5: well at that point um in 2013 tim was a part of a um a uh, a lightning research project uh funded by uh darpa you know this federal agency uh and they were you know essentially just out there with this uh with this box van that tim had built um that had all sorts of crazy cameras in it. I mean, super high-speed cameras. You know, even one camera that could take up to a million frames per second of video. They were hoping to understand, you know, some of these fundamental mysteries of lightning um, and and some of the other electromagnetic phenomena that accompany lightning. And so that was their main mission at that point. You know, but they had also brought along um, a a sedan uh, for for side chases. So on that day, uh, May 31st, 2013, they knew that there was going to be a big storm. They were supposed to be Set up somewhere far to the north of that storm to be able to photograph the lightning. The best place to photograph lightning isn't right up close to the storm. It's it's way further to the north. Um, but as the as the as the, as the shape of the day kind of came into sharper focus, as they began to see just how how powerful this event could be, they I think they decided you know hey we can't we can't pass this up. We've got to go we've got to go chase this. And they probably planned on coming back and and, and photographing lightning later that evening um but it didn't work out that way so they left their they left their 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 lightning um their lightning photography vehicle uh in northern oklahoma and they drove south uh to towards oklahoma city in the central oklahoma area where where the storm was forecast to begin and uh they set up um you know just as the uh, on the southern cell of the storm system just as it was beginning to intensify they were in perfect
0: position. Brantley, I want to play for you Tim Samaras on MSNBC on the morning of May 31st, 2013. And this would be, well, a tragic and terrible day for the Samaras family. He called in not to the Weather Channel on this particular hit. It was a news channel, an all-day news channel, MSNBC. Let's take a listen to his final appearance national television. Right
3: now the skies are fairly clear we do not have storm initiation, but we fully expect storm initiation probably within the next two to three hours. And uh, boy, the ingredients are coming together for a pretty volatile day.
4: Tim,
1: what are you watching for? What are you chasing right now?
3: Well, at
5: the moment we are looking for the very special type of storm called a supercell. A supercell is a very violent a storm that is very capable of large hail and pretty destructive tornadoes. And so we're looking for the formation of these particular thunderstorms
3: right now, especially in, in central Oklahoma, even along I forty is kind of where we're currently targeting.
0: Well and this is this is true. It turned into a monster this storm, two point five miles wide, infested with other small tornadoes inside it. Talk about the miscalculations and mistakes Tim might have made here, Brantley, or were they even mistakes at all? And this was a mon- it turned into a monster. I mean, two point five miles wide at its. And the thing about this tornado, miles per hour. Talk about the miscalculations or the the mistakes that Tim may have made, um, and were they even mistakes in the end?
5: Uh. Yeah, I mean, that's a tricky question. I think they were mistakes. Um, so, Tim, you know, I mean, they, they went out after the storm as they usually would any, any tornado. I mean, they were, they were in perfect position to intercept the storm, but it wasn't a regular storm. It was moving to the southeast, uh, you know, to the east. Uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was sort of all over the place, and they were struggling to keep up with it. And, and what was worse is that, you know, for a large part of their chase, Um, this monster tornado was rain-wrapped. It was completely obscured by rain. They couldn't see what it was doing. Uh, They couldn't see how explosively it was growing and how quickly it was beginning to move. Um, And there were just a lot of things that went wrong along the way. You know, as they were trying to, you know, get in closer to this tornado, you know, at one point, uh, they actually, they thought they were going to be able to take an east turn that would prevent them from having to drive too close to the tornado. But that turned ended up being a dead end so they had to go even farther south toward this tornado and actually ended up um traveling into uh the the outer circulation into the debris core of this tornado actually getting hit by some debris they had to drive then north out of there and then continue along east to try to get ahead of this tornado and so they were losing ground all the while um and then eventually you know after they crossed uh u.s highway 81 that was kind of was sort of one of their last chances to um you know, to get out of the way of this thing, that they kept going because they couldn't see what was happening. I mean, they, they, they could not see the tornado. And they didn't realize by this point that it was, you know, it, it was moving, you know, the, the, the tornado, the larger tornado itself was moving at highway speeds, and it was starting to hook to the north, uh, and that it had this, um, this sub-vortex, this tornado within the tornado, that uh, you know contained some really really powerful winds. Uh, I mean, they were they later found winds in this tornado you know well in excess of 300 miles per hour, uh, and so they couldn't see this thing whenever it whenever it ran them over. Uh, they didn't know that they needed to either stop or turn north to get out of the way. And uh, you know, I mean, when this when this sub vortex came out of the uh, it would have come out of the east. I mean, it just it was the last place where they would have thought a tornado would come at them from. But uh, it caught them it caught them off guard. They just They came up against the wrong tornado at the wrong time in the wrong place.
0: Indeed. I'm going to read from the book. And folks, pick up the book, The Man Who Caught the Storm. It's terrific. Once you start it, you can't put it down. It reads like almost a police procedural. A plot just hurtles along to this really tragic end. In all of these years, Tim has learned to see the ticks and patterns of the vortex. His probes aren't all that have entered the unknown, glimpsing places no one alive had ever seen before. Tim has as well. And at these moments of extremity, it has always been his talent to see when the door is closing. He has always been able to find the seam and to slip through to safety. But this time, it's too late. This is the tornado he can't outrun. Very harrowing. Let's talk about what the finding was because, my goodness, the Chevy Cobalt that he was in was really tossed almost a half a mile away. And a man named Sergeant Doug Girton of the Canadian County Sheriff's Office discovered a car sitting in a field after that tornado had passed. What did he discover, Brantley?
5: Right. Well, he, uh, you know, he was as he was, you know, traveling traveling along this dirt road, uh, looking for, you know, injured people, you know, whatever he could find. Uh, he, He saw this glint of white out in a out in a canola field and you know when he went to investigate further it was you know it was a sedan but it was it was just mangled you know it looked like um uh you know it looked like it'd been stripped down basically to the chassis um and uh you know he found he found Tim inside um and uh you know didn't realize at first you know who this guy was but it kind of seemed like he might be a storm chaser there was some kind of gear that was in the car that was synonymous with storm chasers and when he finally pulled Tim's wallet, you know, out of his back pocket and, and saw the name, you know, he finally, you know, realized, you know, who he was, who he was looking at. Because Tim, you know, Doug Gerton had seen uh, uh, Storm Chasers on Discovery Channel before. And so, you know, from that moment on, he, he, he did all this business with dispatch through his cell phone because, you know, he worried that, you know, if people listening to a scanner pick this up, they would, you know, they would converge on his location. Um Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, when he found Tim, you know, that was officially the first moment that, you know, uh, storm chasers had ever been killed in a tornado, as hard as that is to believe.
0: And I want to thank Brantley Hargrove, who you've been listening to for this entire story and his book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras is just a remarkable read Buy it for you and the family. It is not a sad story. Tim died doing what he wanted to do. By the way, his son died too, 25 years old. And the wife wrote this spectacular letter honoring Tim's life and all the work that all these men and women do to protect us and help save lives. And we're going to listen to Tim as we go out talking about the thing he loved to do most. His life story here on Our American Stories.
1: You know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I enjoy the hell out of it. I really do.
0: Out here watching the the great clouds, the great storms, you never know exactly what you're going to find.